Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. You're the first one in, last one out, and you do whatever it takes to succeed. Nonetheless, 25 million Americans have chosen the entrepreneurial life because it's equal parts demanding and fulfilling. Welcome to the People First, Then Profit podcast. Join hospitality veteran, photographer, and entrepreneur Don Mamoni each week as he hosts a candid, no-holds-barred conversation with successful business owners and entrepreneurs eager to share their professional secrets with you. Like his crazy Italian family does on Sunday nights, he's serving up a healthy portion of inspiration, motivation, and education, so I hope you're hungry. Now, here's your host, Don Mamoni. All right, everybody, welcome back to the People First and Profit podcast. I am here today with an amazing person who brought me an amazing idea, and that is Erica Ross Krieger. She is here, and we are going to do our first ever co-recorded podcast in that we are recording a podcast whose content is applicable to both of our audiences. We're going to ask questions and answer them of each other, and the podcast is going to release on the same day. Erica, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me, Don. I'm so excited. And Wealthies, as you're coming in and you're used to hearing me, now you're going to hear both of us. I've invited an awesome friend, Don Mamoni, and we're going to try out something unique and different today and be broadcasting both at the releasing our podcast, both at the same time. So Don, I'm really excited to have you here. I am too. And did I catch that you have a fun name for your for your audience members? You call them wealthies? I call them wealthies, but I spell it W-E-L-L-T-H-I-E-S because we're all about creating wealth from the inside out, true wealth from the inside out, and however you define that to be. I could not be more obsessed with that idea because, of course, with somebody whose motivation is people first than profit and the fact that I redefine profit for clients every day, in that client doesn't necessarily mean money. It means so many things to so many people. The idea of respelling wealth with W-E-L-L is brilliant. I'm so excited about today. I am too. And I, I just love how our audiences, we could, all, we could all be sitting in the same cafe. <laughs> we could entirely, I mean, we would have coffees and we talked about, oh, how long should we? You and I could talk for hours upon hours and never, never get tired and never run out of content. So... Um, with that in mind, I'm going to read your bio to get this thing kicked off. Is that okay? Fair enough. Okay. Erica Ross Krieger, MA, is a nationally acclaimed business and success mindset coach, author of the inspirational book, Seven Sacred Attitudes, How to Live in the Richness of the Moment, and an EFT tapping expert. Six, seven, and eight-figure entrepreneurs hire Erica to help them identify and clear the inner mindset blocks that are keeping them from new levels of wealth. The founder of New Attitudes Corporation, Erica works with entrepreneurs throughout the world, inspiring them to come to life more fully and helping them attain these new levels of wealth as they define it. Erica's wide range of educational achievements include a master's degree in organization development, certificates in EFT tapping, as well as in nutrition education, postgraduate training as an art therapist. Erica blends her extensive professional background with her personal life experience to offer powerful and transformative programs, services, products, and the Entrepreneur's Cafe podcast, rich with multifaceted wisdom. In doing so, her work fosters a sense of well-being for clients, readers, and podcast listeners worldwide. 
Erica lives in Northern California with her husband, Steve, and a garden of lavender that soothes her soul. I love your bio and I love lavender. So <laughs> it's so soothing. <laughs> and may I read your bio, Don? You certainly may. Thank you. I would love to introduce you to the wealthies. So Don's decade-long career in hospitality culminated with his role as the director of events for the world-renowned Beverly Hilton. His time in this fast-paced, high-profile career instilled in him the importance of customer service and relationship marketing. Determined to pursue a lifelong passion, Don and his wife, Emily, opened their photography studio 14 years ago, guided by and based largely on these principles learned on the front lines of hospitality. Creating an award-winning studio, photographing from Dallas to destinations around the world, the Mamonis are confident their success is due in no small part to their people first, then profit philosophy. As a relationship marketer, speaker, educator, coach, and catalyst, Don is dedicated to helping business owners and entrepreneurs succeed by employing his proven tactics to create and develop unique brands that people love. And I happen to know he is absolutely uh, in love with both his wife and his four-year-old daughter. That's the that is honestly the best thing that you could add uh, as an exclamation point at the end of that bio, because my most important roles in life are as a husband and a father. So thank you for, for adding that. You're welcome. So you not only came to me with this great idea to basically co-podcast, but you came to me with the concept. So if it's okay with you, I want to start by asking you about the topic that you brought to me. And that's basically the concept of intensity and people being addicted to intensity. So tell me how that came about and maybe where that, where, if there's a story there. Oh, there's lots of stories. So let's see, I am going to go back in time and don't even ask me how many years ago I, I have been entrepreneuring. Literally, this is my 30th year. Oh, wow. So, yep. And, and I'm, um, so I've seen a lot of transitions in my own business and I've experienced a lot of different periods, but I, I, I'm going to go back in time to a time when um, in the very, very beginning, I had three suitcases loaded up with clothes, all excited to go for three weeks back to Chicago. I'm in California. So that was a, a big trip um, for me. And, and mind you, I was just barely 30 at the time and uh, had my suitcases loaded up and had this really big, uh, and it, was my first year as an entrepreneur, had a big gig in Chicago. And it was a three week period where I'd be gone. And I was going to deliver two three day workshops, three weeks in a row, that's six workshops in three weeks, with no breaks in between, except for the weekend. And I went running off to that came back, uh, afterwards with a very fat now mind you this was like 19 what 90 uh, with a very fat six-figure check in my hand took a deep breath released it let down and said oh my god now what um the the fat check in my hand didn't mean anything at that point because I started to not feel well 
um, I wound up developing a, a chronic illness and slowing down and saying, you know, that's not the speed of light life that I want to be traveling at. And my husband, Steve and I at the time were um, studying with a cultural anthropologist, the late Angelus Arian, who studied indigenous peoples throughout the world and had a question she'd asked us shortly thereafter, which was, um, are, you in, are you addicted to intensity? And at the time I realized that I'd gotten um, addicted to the adrenaline and addicted to the rush of what I was doing. And then when I is like stepping off a merry-go-round and then you're still sort of spinning around and then realizing I just, I couldn't slow down. I couldn't mm -hmm. be still. And that's actually when I, when I started meditating and, and doing things like that. It, this is not something that you came upon yesterday. This is something that you learned a very long time ago. And I'm going to want to say that it's something that you have to work towards consistently because if we pull at the thread, now I just want to say, I understand addiction is a medical diagnosis in many cases. And uh, in this case, we're using addiction as a propensity towards or something that is, is sort of normal and innate to us. If you're addicted to it, it means that it's not something that you can just cure yourself of or go away. It, it tends to be something that lingers. And so it sounds like mindset and tapping it, it puts you in a position to accept that this addiction existed and work your way out of it consistently. I'd say that. And it also began my journey and that's why I wrote seven sacred attitudes, but also began the journey of realizing that, you know, I, I want to go back to this with the definition of it and then we'll go with you because that's why I wanted us to do this together. Let's, let's, dive deep and, and get juicy into the conversation because what intensity is for one person is not for another. And, and, and by addiction, I just meant also the idea that um, not only could stopping it be difficult or challenging, but do you feel like crap when you stop the behavior? Do you, do you feel unsettled when you stop that thing? And mm -hmm. So that that's sort of where the idea came from, but but also the idea that uh, one man, one woman's intensity is not another woman's intensity. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I don't know. How about you? So I am immediately torn, uh, but I find that there's a tipping point. So I've I've been in and out of a couple of different industries in my life. Uh, I'm now on my third uh, career evolution in that I was a hospitality veteran. I worked in the hotel property for eight years, and then I worked two years at the corporate office. I then opened the photography studio with Emily. And for 14 years, we've uh, served clients in the social, corporate, nonprofit, live events industry as a photography team. And both of those, by definition, are pressure-filled, intense, in first, outlast, doing whatever it takes to get the job done. And I don't know that I knew any different. And I don't know that I didn't like it at the time, right? I was 23 or 24 when I first started working at a hotel. Uh, it was fairly high pressure, large conferences, uh, high-profile clients paying uh, big dollars. Uh, and as long as I guess I had the energy, I was fine with it. But what happens is... and Maybe this is part of that process as I got older or when I was finally placed in an environment where that intensity also was followed by a core value that I didn't share or people that didn't share my core values was why I said, I don't want to do this anymore. With the photography, 
uh, I think it was the right balance of intensity. And, and here's what I mean by that is you ramp up for a large conference. You spend three or four days working tireless hours with the client, but you know what you're going in for, you know what you're creating, you know why you're creating it. And then on the backside, it's sort of a cyclical nature. The things that I find to be destructive in my world is if I allow those things to become not only intensified, but pervasive. So I feel like I like a quick adrenaline rush. I'm not an adrenaline junkie from a jumping out of a plane perspective, <laughs> but you know, you get ready for it, you gear up for it, you put all the stuff on, you learn about it, you jump out the plane. And then when you're done, you come down from it. And it's an enjoyable experience. Whereas if you felt that rush of adrenaline all the time, every day and without end or without any type of respite from it. That's when I feel like I would start to break down. I would start to feel like this isn't the life I want to live. And you mentioned my beautiful wife and my cute and creative daughter. Part of that is about being here for them, being present in their life and not feeling like I can't enjoy the life that I want to create. And that's part of being an entrepreneur, right? Is having a flexible life, a flexible uh, hours. I can work when I'm most productive. And, you know, when my daughter comes and says, daddy, you want to have a tea party? I want to be able to say yes. So, so that's, you know, the events industry. And a lot of my audience, um, Erica is, is people in the live event industry. And unfortunately right now, many of us have been uh, on hiatus or sidelined for quite some time, but this is a real thing for them. Intensity and, and being, being pushed to the ends of their capabilities is real. So this is an interesting thing. The idea of um, intensity external and intensity internal. And, and by that, I, I mean, so there's these external things, external pressures, external forces, things to keep up with, your feet on Facebook going a mile, mile a minute, an actual industry that demands you keep up with things. And then there's, do you experience it intensely on the inside? Is there so much adrenaline output that you're getting adrenal fatigue? And I won't even put in my nutrition hat with science at all, but is there so much output that you're depleting yourself and and what could cause that for one person might be different for another person you know one event might fatigue one guy out 10 events might not fatigue another guy out so mm -hmm. i think that's kind of an interesting thing to look at and it does speak to the fact that with not everybody being the same, there's a, a lack of relativity from person to person to person in that there's an intensity that can fatigue you, but everybody's threshold isn't the same. And I think that that's to be respected, right? So if your threshold is above or below the other person, we need to respect that. And next, that means we all would have to deal with it differently and in different ways and at different times, right? So uh, I am not good about it, Erica, I'm not going to lie, but I know that I do better when I am mindful and I do some sort of mindful practice. You just said something. You said like, I'm not good about it. So I'm just going to offer you two words because your listeners, my listeners, and even myself as a reminder that when we say things like that, like I'm not good at it, then there's a, a self-hypnosis that happens with that. And one of my mentors, Rick Carson, who wrote the book, Taming Your Gremlin, who's an awesome psychologist in Dallas, Texas, introduced me to these two words. I share them with you and they're until now. Mm. And so he says, take the same sentence you just said and say it again with until now. So until now, you haven't been good at it, right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing Rick throws out is he says, you know, the breath is both a barometer and a regulator. Mm -hmm. And at any moment in time, we are only 
one breath away from home base. And for me, all I have to remember is like to stop and plug back into me with a breath. That kind of works. It, so I love until now, you're right, because I could very easily change the end goal there, right? I'm not good about it until now. And here's the other thing that's really interesting, Erica. I live oftentimes in a self-accepted do as I say, not as I do. I mm. often lead by example too. I don't mm. want to be too hard or self-deprecating, uh, but I acknowledge that there's oftentimes when I tell people, you know, we were just talking earlier about people creating content and not being afraid and stepping out and being a, a, a role model or a trailblazer. And uh, I oftentimes overcomplicate things. And I tell other people, don't overcomplicate it. It doesn't have to be this whole thing. And so when I say I'm not good about mind mindfulness, I oftentimes sit there and think, well, I've got to go find a quiet space and I've got to put my ear pods in and I've got to do this and I've got to find the right meditation. And when I could very easily just sit down quietly in a room and just block everything out and take 25 deep breaths or 10 deep breaths, it could be 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, 10 minutes. And so uh, thanks for the reminder. And thanks for the until now. I'm going to, I'm going to go and take that <laughs> oh. and use it. I'm going to put it up on my desk because uh, the other one, which I don't know if you uh, have had a, a chance to listen to it, but Jorge, uh, who's uh, an associate of mine, who does a lot of personal development says, we all need to change the words. I have to with, I get to nice. And it immediately changed your perspective. And I said, even if you're talking about taxes, I have to pay taxes. That's a common one, right? If you say, I get to pay taxes, it puts you in the mindset to think, well, the reason I'm paying taxes is because I own my own business, which is really fortunate. And I made money last year or last month or last week. And so I have to pay the taxes on the money that I made because I'm good at what I do and people want to pay. So it's, it really, it's just a mind, it's a, it's a mindset change. All right. You do until now. Also, um, Rick Carson throws, he has a whole thing on semantics. He uses another one in, in addition to what Jorge said, he says, I choose to, mm. so I choose to pay my taxes. I choose so um, like being conscious. So how, how all this is relating for me to this idea of intensity. I just led a 10-day course and it was fun and it was engaging and there were a lot of people involved and a lot of growth and a lot of learning and when it was over. I was like, oh, now what? I think how I, there's, there's different ways to be addicted to it. And one of the ways I recognize that addiction, I know I'm using that word loosely, but is when the thing stops, are you okay with being still? Mm -hmm. That is a brilliant way. Cause I think when we think about something that would be again, loosely addicted to or proverbially addicted to, you think about wanting more and needing more, but you don't necessarily think of the opposite is what's the impact if you don't get more or there isn't more. And here's a correlation for you. Okay. Productivity for me oftentimes stems from intensity. Okay. I'll say that again. For me, as I thought about this conversation with you, some self-reflection brought about that productivity stems from intensity. The hmm. busier I am, the more deadlines I have, the less time I have to complete it, the more productive I can be. This, this goes all the way back. And I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was, Erica, because it dates me. <laughs> but when I would write college papers, when I would have projects due, I might do some research. I might line it up. I might write the outline. Very rarely did I ever write a paper or put an assignment or a project together 
until I put it into the time that I thought it would actually take me to do it. So you were pressure prompted. I was 100% pressure prompted. In fact, I remember clear as the day that I had a friend who was like, Hey, why don't you want to go out and see this movie? And I was like, Oh, I didn't do that paper yet. And he's like, Oh, okay. Well, I'll catch you next time. I'm like, no, 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 I'll go. It was like a nine o'clock movie. And I was home at midnight writing my paper that was due at eight o'clock the next morning. And I, I got a, a decent grade. I was, I was pretty good in school, but it became abundantly obvious to me as I became an entrepreneur, especially when you're doing self-driven productivity. I oftentimes was like, okay, let me get this all lined up. Okay. I'm going to work on this stuff. Now I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing, except when you miscalculate or you take on too much or you spread yourself too thin, because that's when the pressure lends itself to anxiety and stress. And, and the next thing I want to talk to you about Erica, which is what happens when you boil over all of what I just described for me is fine. <laughs> Until I miscalculate and something happens and I boil over, which means that I've got too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I become anxious, uh, short, disconnected, discouraged, distracted, all the terrible words that you don't want to hear. So so how does that impact our people, the people around us? So that, that seems like the next natural segue to talk about. Cool. First off, my practice is to be mindful enough that I create enough pressure prompting accountability for myself without the boiling over and to look for, for myself, what are the indicators that tell me I'm getting to my limit where boiling over would happen? I love that we're talking those words, but it's so I know the indicators for me. I know Mm -hmm. that if in the day my breathing is shallow if I am finding my brow wrinkled, there are indicators. That's the mindful part. You know, there are mm-hmm. indicators like that I know. How about for you? I'm trying to think about what my indicator would be. I would probably think they're a lot largely physiological. Yeah. You know, you feel your heart racing. Uh, you, you can sense the stress and the anxiety starting. Here's a question for somebody who's admittedly more practice and better at mindfulness and those types of practices than me. My immediate thought is, yeah, I can probably acknowledge what those warning signs are and I just blow right through them and ignore them because I'm on that path. I'm on that track and I'm stressed out and I need to focus on it. So what would your advice be to your audience and mine? If you notice them, here's constructive steps that you can take to make sure that you don't ignore them. Got it. So step one, breathe. Rick Carson's favorite words are breathe, damn it, breathe, but truthfully a breath. And I know that sounds trite, but it is the God-given piece that is the regulator that is what we can use. And that takes us back right? So that that was the first thing we got and it'll be the last thing we have. Mm -hmm. And so there's breath. And the second is, and I I don't know how much you want to get into it, but I'm an EFT practitioner, a tapping practitioner. And that practice I do, if I'm not doing it once, I'm doing it probably three to five times a day at, at any moment in time. So I did it right before I got on with you. So you want me to talk more about that? Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, your audience probably knows quite a bit about your practice and what Mm. EFT tapping is. Mm. My audience, I've mentioned it and we've talked about it probably in my uh, my circle, but we have not been educated. So feel free to chat about it as much as you want so that your audience doesn't think I've heard this before and my audience can be introduced to the concept of EFT tapping. My audience can just take an extra sip of coffee or (laughs) uh, let's see, tea in the cafe and they love to tap anyway. In EFT or tapping, EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Techniques. 
first introduced into the world good 25 to 30 years ago by a Dr. Roger Callahan, who was a psychologist or psychiatrist in New York, who had patients that weren't responding to treatments for their phobias, had a woman who had a phobia of water and even getting into it, and created this sequence whereby you use fingertips to tap on specific acupuncture or acupressure points on the body that thereby release blocks, if you will. So that's like the short version. So basically we're saying in EFT, people use their fingertips to tap on acupuncture points while they are emotionally tuning in to an issue. So, and then after Callahan, um, a brilliant man named Gary Craig, who's now retired from the EFT world, really brought the form of EFT that it is now that I use into the population. And it's used all over the place. Uh, we use it for treating PTSD with soldiers that return from war. We use it in trauma facilities with COVID. There's a lot of people um, on the front line that are using EFT to help them reduce their levels of stress when they get home and even before they go in. And sometimes during the day, um, we're using it with children and we're using it with children as young as four years old to mm. show them that they can regulate and they can bring soothe and calmness to themselves. Um, and we're using it with helping people shift money mindsets, believe it or not. Tapping on acupressure points that are along the line of meridians in the body in Chinese medicine, which goes back 5,000 years or more. The belief is that there are 12 meridians through the body that run energy through them. Mm -hmm. And these are on particular endpoints of those meridians. They're the same points that an acupuncturist would put a needle in and release an energy block. Instead, we found that Callahan found and then Craig, that by tapping on these points slightly, you can actually reduce and release blocks. This is fundamentally another tool in your arsenal to when you recognize these challenges to attack them. So let's list out a few others that people might be a little bit more familiar with. And that's mindfulness, meaning meditation, yoga, um, any type of breathing exercise. And of course, if you involve a coach or someone else, acupuncture, acupressure, reflexology, it does necessitate a person being open to the idea of something that is not traditional Western medicine. So for example, if somebody believes that the only cure for their anxiety is an anxiety medicine, they would need to open their mind and say, what are other ways in which I can sense when intensity or pressure or anxiety is increasing? How do I now release myself from that? They have to open their mind to something like this. Yeah. You've seen it work, obviously. You have clients that have it has worked for. And some who even come in skeptical as hell and find that, yep, this this stuff works. And like I said, so before I got on with you today, to use an mm -hmm. example, right? You could do something as simple as taking a breath, right? You mm -hmm. don't have to do a lot for that, but you could also tap. So before I got on with you today, I noticed my own level of anxiety, quite honestly, which was okay. You know, no, we had nobody's done that I know of. I haven't seen people do this before. We're sort of podcasting at the same time on a topic we haven't really explored before. So this is kind of new territory and new territory for me up until now has not been my favorite to, you know, just come in and, and be all relaxed about it. So I tapped 
And mm-hmm. I tapped and, and you do a sequence and you say, you know, even though I'm anxious right now, I choose to honor this and love and accept myself. And you say those things as you focus on the anxiety and I'm, and you rate it yourself before you start. You say mm-hmm. on a scale of one to 10, how anxious am I? 10 is like off the charts. Mm-hmm. And my, I'd say mine was probably about a five mm-hmm. and I finished tapping and I got it down to a one mm-hmm. and took a drink of water and I'd only took three minutes. Yeah. I, so the thing I love about it is, is it, it, it involves also sort of a mantra is what you're saying, right? And if you're skeptical, welcome. I want you here. <laughs> if you're not skeptical, even more so welcome. Let's talk about it and let's all share in the belief. But I fundamentally believe in the power of the human psyche. I believe in your ability to create self-fulfilling prophecies. We talked about that as we started this call. You know, if you put it out there, this is going to be a dumpster fire mess, but we're going to try it anyway. That's probably what's going to happen. You're going to have put that out into the universe and you're going to reap the unfortunate outcome of that negativity. So this to me is an organized way in which you can, I don't want to say convince yourself per se, but you can reiterate to yourself that it's going to be okay, that the feeling is justified. Because that's the other thing, Erica. I think when people feel negative emotions in all walks of life and all sorts, they want to bury them or be shameful of them, uh, jealousy, anger, envy. They're like, no, that's not okay. I got to get rid of it. I think those are perfectly normal. I think every individual and every human faces them. You just have to accept them and determine how you react to them and how you deal with them. And if this is another tool in my arsenal, put it in my toolbox. I want it. Is that (laughs) fair? I mean. Fair. I'll send you a video so you can learn more. We'll do it. We'll do a round together, but absolutely. And it's twofold. So you not only are you saying something while you're doing this, while you're tapping, but the key is to be focusing and holding the emotion. We're bringing to the surface what's there and we're releasing the block because the idea is the body, mind, spirit, and I'm going to talk about it as all one thing, right? The body, mind, spirit, this vessel likes to be free and clear, likes to be creative, likes to have energy moving, doesn't like to be stuck, right? So I have a segue for you. (laughs) I know we didn't plan it. I'll tell you in a minute. Um, It likes to be free and clear and it likes to let things go, um, which doesn't mean bury it. So that is one of the beauties I think of tapping is that I'm, I'm tapping and I'm honoring it. I'm bringing it to the surface and I'm actually saying to the body, here's this thing, help me let this go. Mm-hmm. And you do it your way, body. Which takes trust in, in your body, takes trust in your vessel, takes trust in your psyche, in your, in your mind. And so I, I'm going to go ahead and show my vulnerable, soft underbelly. The younger me, mm-hmm. Erica, would have called this new age mumbo jumbo. Mm-hmm. I have no problem admitting that. As I've gotten older, as I moved from a rambunctious, anger-ridden child of a single mother who had abandonment issues from, from a father that I never knew, that grew into an adult and a professional, and and most importantly, and again, so cool that you used it as the exclamation point at the end of my bio is, as I've become a parent, more than anything, I want to model behavior for my daughter that is even keel, even-minded, Right. We should have some highs and some lows. I don't mind the roller coaster ride of life. I don't need a carousel that goes at the same speed, the same direction all the time. At the same time, protecting her from the extremes of life. There will be plenty of hard knocks. She'll be able to learn from experience as she grows. But in her formative years, I have found that things like this, conversations like this, practices like this have opened the door to a level of homeostasis in myself and in my environment that I don't think I would have found otherwise. So lovely. 
And what's so great is you can actually introduce her to this tool. And thank you for sharing your underbelly. So in the book that I wrote, Seven Sacred Attitudes, um, mm -hmm. there's a story called Recovery from Unusual Attitudes. Hmm. There's a reason I'm telling you this, and I know that I will forget why I even went to this segue, but I'm <laughs> going to go there anyway. It must be needed or I wouldn't have come up. So in the book, I tell a story and it is a true story. We went to a barbecue one night and we met friends and this was many years ago. And our friend just got his, at the time, his um, pilot's license. Mm -hmm. And he was celebrating that night. He had just gotten it the day before. And he was telling us the story of um, the, the flight test, the final thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was explaining um, what the test was called and how it went down. And I'm going to give you like, this is my version of it. It's not mm -hmm. polished or perfect, but, sure. but it goes like this. So, so what he was teaching us and he taught me was that the idea of attitude in aeronautics and planes is it's measured by the uh, relative position of the airplane to the horizon, mm -hmm. right? So when the plane is in a good attitude, then we're in alignment with the horizon. But anytime we're doing something in the plane, whether it's banking or turning or whatever, we are in what's called, he taught me, an unusual attitude. Now, hmm. I love metaphors, right? So yeah. I'm really jumped on this one. So when we're in the plane, we're doing this thing and we're banking and the nose isn't, or the wings aren't parallel to the horizon anymore. We're in an unusual attitude. So to get it back is called recovery from an unusual attitude. Mm. So in his final exam, actually, with the instructor, they went up, they went in the plane, and the guy had him at a certain height, elevation, not height, close his eyes mm. and put the plane into, I wouldn't call it distress, but into several unusual attitudes and had him then open his eyes quick and get them out of it. Wow. Right. So mm -hmm. he had to like recover from that. And that is what the test was called was recovery from unusual attitudes. Wow. Why I even bring that up is my philosophy is attitude is actually in your body mm -hmm. as well as in your mind. One affects the other. So this whole idea of intensity, what comes first, the chicken, the egg, right? So if I say to you, so Dawn, adopt the posture of being addicted to intensity or like under the gun, so to speak. Mm -hmm. There's a physical way that under the gun shows itself in your body. Mm -hmm. There's a physical thing you do that I don't do maybe, whatever it is. And I say, do it a little bit more and then do it a little less and then do it a little less and do it a little less and recover from that unusual attitude. And so there's another tool for during the day when you catch yourself, as you said, uh, getting close to what was your word? Oh, well, boiling over is boiling is kind over, of, yeah, right? Like just so, realizing that you just can't, you miscalculated and I can't possibly. All right. So that moment when you recognize that you're close to your boiling over point, I would say oh, for all of us, we can get into the posture of I'm about ready to boil over. All right. And what am I doing? I'm hunching my shoulders. I'm narrowing my breathing. I'm shallowing my breathing. I'm the one who's doing it. Mm -hmm. I am collapsing my shoulders. I am restricting my breathing. I am, which means then I am the one 
who can mm-hmm. then do that. Which speaks to the old concept of the difference between stress and a stressor, right? We always say, oh, I'm stressed. Well, stress is something that's prompted by a stressor, which means that in order to be less stressed, you need to either deal with or eliminate the stressor. But the funny thing about it is the stressor isn't doing anything to us other than presenting itself. We're the people, and we all know people talk about A type versus B type personalities and a variety of other things. Something that would create anxiety in me that would make me tighten up and clench up and my shoulders would raise. And to your point, I would furrow my brow. Somebody else might literally be like, why are you acting like that? It's just blank, right? And it's they just, just a school much, bus that showed they, up. Yeah, they just have a much more calm demeanor about approaching it. And so I, I love the conceptual that you shared with us today, Erica, but I also like the fact that you've given us some tactical ideas on how to deal with this. Because I know that my audience, most of them are wired in that way. Most people in hospitality are servants at heart. Most people that are entrepreneurs are pressure driven. And that's a bulk of my audience these days. And so if you're listening to this and you are a people first, then profit revolutionary, then you have to accept the fact that if we're not good to ourselves, we're not going to be any good to anybody else. And that means seeing the warning signs, filling up your toolbox with all the tools that you need, because to your point, nobody's going to do it for you. This is something that we're oftentimes doing to ourselves and we need to shake it off. We need to to change it. And so much of what you're talking about, Erica, is mind, body, and soul, right? Because you're talking about a physiological change, changing your attitude, right? In, in mind, but also your physical, you're doing the tapping, which involves your body, which will physiologically shake you out of it or at least help you do so. Yeah. And I love that your philosophy of people first is such a lovely reminder of what's important, Mm -hmm. you know, and that there's, yeah, there's the intensity of of events or, or in the hospitality industry, but can we lessen that when we remember that it's all about people? So I love that. Well, and in my coaching, especially in my group coaching, we go through a program and part of that program is determining who your people are. When you think about people first and profit, Erica, you have to dissect that. It's a causal relationship. If you put people first, profit will come, which means you need to figure out your people. Mm -hmm. The most amazing thing to me is when we list out all the categories and then we even dig a little deeper and people can write names of people in those individual categories, almost every single time the last person the person ever talks about is themselves. They forget mm. that they themselves are their people in a sense, because if if they're not there, they're not providing to the world. They're not being a parent. They're not being a brother, sister, an entrepreneur. And so when you take that to the next level and we talk about intensity and pressure, the other humanistic trait that I've noticed in entrepreneurship, in hospitality, as a photographer, we externalize credit and reasons why something has been successful or benefits have been drawn. And we internalize the constructive feedback of why something wasn't as successful as it should have been. Mm. And it's, it's a beating. There's nothing wrong with constructive criticism for yourself and growth and continuing to improve the process. But if you don't accept that you are one of your own people that deserves anything that you would give anybody else, and you don't accept that you are part of the reason that you've reached levels of success, you've hit milestones, you've achieved goals, helped others. It has a very destructive element. And so that's kind of where the people first came from and why what you do is so important is it literally strategically and tactically facilitates a person's ability to be good to themselves so that they can be there for everybody else. Well, thank you. And 
I just want to say, point out to the wealthies listening to take in what Don just said. I mean, that's like, we haven't really talked about that in the cafe, you guys before. So take that in because you are your people. I love that, Don. Thanks. I'm so glad you do. I think that we could do this forever. And I think that we should do this again. But out of of deference to people's time, can I ask (laughs) you, where can my audience find you? Let's send them to ericarosscoach.com forward slash toolkit. And they'll not only be able to find me, but they'll be able to get on my newsletter list to get a weekly newsletter with more of these concepts and also a free video of how to do tapping. So ericarosscoach.com forward slash toolkit. Awesome. I love that. How about, how about my people? Because I know they are going to love hearing more and listening into some of your podcast episodes and learning all of what you offer as well. So where can they find you? Well, thank you. So, so much of what I do is about community and trying to create interactions amongst people. And so I host a weekly Zoom on Monday that's open to all business owners and entrepreneurs and people that want to come together and find community. And typically what we do on that day is we share wins over the week. We offer up struggles and crowdsource solutions. And and there's usually some topic that we talk about to help uh, people tactically succeed. And they can go to peoplefirstthenprofit.com to find links to the podcast, to sign up for that Monday Zoom, to see all the different blog posts and be part of the community. There's some freebies. If they want to explore that site, it's peoplefirstthenprofit.com. Love it. So let's both put those links in our show notes. 100%. Let's just make it easy. They can just listen to the podcast and then start searching and scrolling our websites. Um, Any final thoughts, Erica, that you want to offer up? Uh, Just that it's been absolutely fabulous to do this with you. And I'm so glad we did. And uh, tag your it. Now you come up with the next idea. You know, I just, this, I'm a relationship marketer at heart. And when I say relationship marketer at heart, I mean loud and proud. And the People First Then Profit Rally Cry came about because I believe that no matter where you are in your business, I don't care if you're a tenured professional of ages or you're a brand new, I'm going to start this and I'm going to want this to be a success. The people that you surround yourself with will be the best possible way that you can achieve successes. You can hit goals. You can do new things, surround yourself with those people even today when things are so challenging and we are social distance, find the community, engage, interact, develop those meaningful bonds, and they are going to serve you much better than, than anything you can imagine. Love that. And you're one of my people. And mm-hmm. I've enjoyed this a great deal. And I'm confident that we're absolutely going to do it again. You're one of my people. And I agree. Awesome. Thanks, Erica. Thanks for listening to the People First in Profit podcast. If you like this episode, and I'm pretty sure you did, subscribe, review, and share it with your friends, fans, and followers wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the show notes for additional information about this week's guest, as well as a list of all the links and resources we discussed. Be sure to visit peoplefirstinprofit.com for a ton of great content, free resources, and links to the People First in Profit community. All right, I'm Adam Wilmore, and on behalf of your host, Don Mamoni, we'll see you next week. Thank you.